Welcome. So glad that you are here tonight. We have got a, a fun topic that I'm excited to talk with you tonight about. But uh, if this is your first time, welcome. You'll see these sheets. This top QR code is the way that you can text in any question whatsoever tonight, uh, which, which should be pretty fun. It doesn't have to relate at all to what, what we're going to talk about tonight, which is fine. If you want to join our email list, that's the bottom left there. You can scan that QR code. And as I mentioned last week, we, we've been dra breaking trademark law, I think, uh, for unbeknownst But to no us. big deal. No big deal. You You're know. not monetizing this. Yeah, I think we're all right. But yes. out, of, out of kindness, we're going to change our name. And we're going to solicit your thoughts. I've, we've had a number of submissions. Brian and I are going to pick the best submission that we like. And the prize is going to be a nice set of beer mugs or uh, glasses that have the new name engraved on them. So, uh, hopefully a little incentive, but you can at least help us out by submitting what you think would be the best name for this time. Uh, we've had some great ones there. Also, we've got uh, Holy City Life, which has been, we started this back in the summer. It was an opportunity to have some fellowship outside of uh, Theology on Tap. I know a number of y'all ha have been to those. and I think we're trying to still figure out exactly what that looks like, but I, I think from in the summertime, it's a huge opportunity where there's lots there, there's lots of opportunities to get together. I think we're going to move it to about once a month from now on uh, until the summer again. But uh, if you want to be a part of that, join the GroupMe and do check the GroupMe. I don't know if you'll have the GroupMe app, but it's really easy to miss kind of what's going on there. But if y'all could be kind enough just to like, I, I think we've got like 50 people on yeah. the GroupMe, which is great. Um, but we would love to, when we do do something, we want to have... Uh, folks who can at least we can bank on who's going to show up that sort of thing so uh, holy city life opportunities to to be with one another outside of theology on tap we also have small groups and bible studies and all that stuff too going if you're interested just talk to us afterwards brian happy halloween happy halloween to you let's talk uh we're going to talk about halloween and all saints and maybe even all souls which mm -hmm. I'll, I'll confess i didn't even know what that was until preparing for this <laughs> So uh, no shame if, if you're like, I thought that was the same thing. I already know what that is. So uh, let's start with some of the easy ones. Should Christians celebrate Halloween, yes or no? Yes. Okay, why? That was a resounding. Uh, because it's cool. Okay. Now, yeah, help, help unpack. All right, if we apply that same logic to other things. Um, you mean like it seemed like it was a good idea at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, Halloween actually is really awesome when you understand what it is. But the trick is that most people have no idea what Halloween actually is. And the interesting thing, and I have to credit Justin Hare for this analogy, um, are any of y'all people who ever took the Miller's analogy test? I don't know what that no. is. Um, it used to be something that you had to take to get into law school. Uh, but good analogies are hard to find. And Justin came up with this great analogy where he Talking said up, that Halloween, understanding Halloween, the best way to think about it is to think about how Mardi Gras is to Ash Wednesday is the way Halloween is to All Saints Day. So... Most people know what Mardi Gras is. Uh, a lot of people don't really know what Ash Wednesday is. And so there's a big cultural investment in Mardi Gras. Lots of partying, lots of great times. Uh, 
but people have lost what it meant and what it was for. And Halloween is sort of the same way. Um, Halloween actually is uh, an ancient Christian feast. The idea that it is a satanic holiday is a much later idea that is actually fake news. Um, when, when did that fake news come about? Um, I think say? that fake news started like in the 60s, maybe. Something oh, like okay, that. 1960s. Yeah, so it's pretty recent. But what are they drawing on when they say that? Well, they're drawing on um, some lore uh, that is Celtic out of the, the Celtic and Druidic feast of, uh, this is, again, one of these words the irish language is the weirdest language ever for pronunciation so there's a druidic celtic feast in ireland that is spelled s-a-m-h-a-i-n which by all rights should be what samhain exactly thank you but it's not what it's called it's Samhain. Just like I, I relearned this the hard way when we were in Ireland this summer, and I asked the cab driver to take us to Dunlao Yair, which is D-U-N-L-A-O-G-H-A-I-R-E, Dunlao Yair, right? Except it's not. It's Dunleary. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. But anyway, Samhain is an old feast that certain druids observed and then there's the idea that that was the night that the veil between the living and the dead was rent and there's this cave in County Roscommon actually where the McGreevies are from uh, there's this cave that supposedly if you crawl in the cave it's like the portal and stranger things you can go through into the upside down uh, except it's not real Sorry to disappoint anyone. Uh, but all of that, that's all true, but that was very minor and pretty much confined to Ireland. Whereas the actual roots of Halloween come from the celebration of All Saints Day. And that was originally a feast in the early Christian church to give thanks for the lives of people that uh, were martyred for the Christian faith. But sadly, in the early church, there were so many people martyred in the Christian faith. It used to be that each martyr got a day, but then they ran out of days because there were so many martyrs. So the church leaders decided we're going to do this on one day, which is going to be All Saints Day. And that was one of the four principal Christian feasts of the year. And the roots of that go back to the 400s. So it's very, very ancient. It was ordained by the Catholic Church as an official feast in the 8th century, and it became part of what is called uh, the mini triduum, which is, that's a good fancy theological language. Um, does anybody know what the triduum is? The actual triduum. The actual not triduum, the triduum, not the mini triduum. Don't feel bad. Uh, so the Probably tri- do, but not yet. <laughs> um, what is the triduum? Uh, so, I mean, I think it's Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Yes, that's right. All right. Yes. So, tri, tri meaning three, three. right? And so, those three days go together, yes, right? That's exactly right. So, this is, uh, we are actually in All Hallows Mass, in case you didn't know, or All Hallows Tide, 
And Halloween is the first part of that uh, tonight, All Hallows' Eve. Tomorrow, All Saints' Day, followed by All Souls' Day. And so the idea of that, it used to just be that it was All Saints' Day and the eve of that, but All Souls' Day was added because the New Testament, when it talks about the saints, it's not just St. Francis of Assisi and uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux and all that kind of thing. Uh, it's everyone who believed in Jesus. And so All Souls' Day is to commemorate the lives of all of those who are Christians who have gone on uh, to the next life in heaven. So there's that celebration that lasts during that period that's marked by festival church services. And if you were in a country other than the United States, if you were in Spain, or even if you were in some parts of Louisiana, um, you would find that people tonight would be going and they would be lighting candles and saying prayers at the graves of loved ones. Um, that is uh, a more widespread practice than trick-or-treating. Yeah, so I think I had heard about the Druids and all that, where they basically lit fires and they were dressing up in disguises because the dead were coming back. And that was kind of the... But as you said, it, the roots of All Saints Day, and really the feast, which began the night before, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. On technically tonight, All Hallows' Eve. And hallow, anybody want to know, take a guess as what... It means, what, what hallow means, it's in the Lord's Prayer. Holy. Holy. Oh, yeah. good. We're set apart, which, by the way, is exactly what the word saint from yep. in Latin sanctus, but mm -hmm. Greek, um, and hag French. hagios, yeah. Uh, but th that all means the same thing, set apart, right? And that's what really a saint is. And the New Testament, it's not just uh, uh, those... The Roman Catholic Church has an understanding of, of sainthood that's different from the Protestant Church, but uh, and the in the scriptures, as you alluded to, all the saints are all Christians, and which is why you had all souls. Um, so yeah, I heard about like okay, the the Irish and the Druid kind of pagan side of Halloween. I've also heard things before, and I'm curious if you have about like the Christians mocking death, mocking. Um, the powers of evil? Yeah. What, what are the roots of that? Yeah, so I think the roots of that are pretty well documented. And the, the idea, and this is something that's so foreign to us, we're so far away from this in our culture right now, because we live probably in the most death-denying culture that has ever existed. And it used to be that death was much more present um, in most people's lives because... Uh, when people died, they died at home. There weren't hospitals for most of human history. Uh, things would happen like if you go read the journal of the rector of St. Philip's from the 1830s, you will see these passages where when there was a yellow fever epidemic, when they were burying 50 people a day during that time period. And so there was this whole idea of not only the reality of death, but also the reality for Christians of eternal life. And that this life that Jesus won for us by rising victorious over death on Easter was real and tangible and ultimately more important than the life that we were living on this earth. And so that's where the idea of mocking death came from because you will probably remember if you've been to some Easter services, some of those scriptures like 
O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is now thy victory? And the idea that Jesus conquered death. And of course, this is exactly what C.S. Lewis is playing with in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan, the great lion, dies on the stone table, and the children are shocked that Aslan comes back to life. And he says that if the witch had read the deep magic, she would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery gives his life in the stead of a traitor uh, and is killed, that the stone table would crack and death itself would begin to work backwards. And that's really the idea that the early Christian church held on to. If you've ever been to the catacombs in Rome, what you will see is all of these tombs and bones, but with all of this hopeful iconography about eternal life all in there, there was very much part and parcel of what it meant to be a Christian. And we, we to our detriment, we've lost that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I think either way, if you root back what was, a, even prior to like the Celtic Druid stuff, going back to the early church, where you had martyrs whose lives were honored on days throughout the year, mm-hmm. and specifically All Saints' Day. Um, you know, that's one way to approach Halloween and to really honor it. Even if you had this incredibly pagan side of it, it's it's not unredeemable, right? You can right. still approach it and um, take a lot of what we're talking about and, and, and pretty much impose that onto this holiday. And unfortunately, where we are, the reason that analogy came to my mind was the consumerism, the entertainment, the individualism of like a Mardi Gras with Halloween. Now it's all about like these costumes that are mostly inappropriate that people see. Not just scary anymore, but it's become, you know, an excuse to, uh, for debauchery pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how does, uh, how does the All Saints Day, that, that mini tritium, how does that speak into the current culture and not just the secular world, but even for the average young adult Christian, like what, what ways does that, is it actually profoundly helpful if we take some of these themes of, of these days? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think there, there are two things that are really profoundly helpful if we'll think about them. One is that part of the understanding of All Saints Day, and this is again something that we've lost, But it used to be that when you were growing up and you were being taught and educated, you would learn about the lives of the saints. And you would learn about people who had done courageous things because of their faith. You would learn about people who had changed the world because of their faith in Jesus. And uh, like the, there's a great hymn in our hymnal that's called I Sing a Song of the Saints of God. Uh, And it talks about the joy of the saints. And that's something, again, that we've lost. We tend to think of saints as martyrs, and oh, that's sad. But the fact of the matter is, these were people who were full of robust faith and joy. And I think learning from their example is something that is hugely important for us today. And then the second aspect of it is because we live in such an individualistic culture, one of the things that All Saints Day reminds us is that when you look in the scriptures, 
There is nowhere where you see this idea of kind of me and Jesus against the world. What you see is the company of believers were all together. And there's this idea that when you are Christians, when you're called together and are separate, holy, saint, all of that, when you are together, that there's this deep bond of unity that comes from that. And that the, the idea of the communion of the saints, which is something we say in the creed every Sunday, but no one really thinks about what does that mean. What that means is that we are part of those people. And the, the fancy theological language for that is the church militant, which means those of us who are still alive and standing and walking around, and the church triumphant, which is those believers who are now living an even fuller life than we are, but with Jesus in heaven, and that we uniquely, when we are at the altar rail and receiving communion, we are uniquely bonded with them. And the scriptures tell us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, which is basically those Christians who have gone before us, who are cheering us on, if you will, who are praying for us in heaven, all of those kinds of things. And so it's a reminder that we're not alone, that we're not the only people that have ever walked this walk. We're not the only people that have ever struggled with this issue and that there is abundant joy in heaven and that one day, and I love this in our new Wednesday night liturgy, um, in the uh, prayer at communion, uh, at the very end it says that one day Christ will unite all things unto himself. He will trample sin and Satan under his feet and that on that last great day we will see our Lord face to face. And there's just beautiful joy in that and all of that is caught up into All Saints Day. Yeah, that's so good. Um, you think about the, the highest value in the world today is individualism and our own um, freedom to do whatever we, we choose. And I think what most people don't realize is just the kind of burden that puts on people to go blaze your own trail. I mean, it sounds great. It rings true partially. But to find who you are on the inside and then have to express that, that's an impossible task. And I don't think that's given enough voice in the world today that you have to, um, looking inward and, and finding your identity and then being able to at all times convince other people of it and express that and tell them, that's, that's an incredible burden to put on people. And one of the, the beautiful things about All Saints is that it, you're reminded that Jesus, yes, he saves individuals, but he never saves individualistically. He saves a body. He saves the church. And you said the church militant uh, and the church triumphant. Those who have gone on to their reward to be with Jesus, they've finished their fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we who are here don't have to fight alone. We, yes, we have the power of the Spirit. We have um, the indwelling of, of Jesus' own Spirit in us. But that even is a corporate understanding, that it's the body of Christians that the Spirit of God indwells. Um, and that he's equipping us and, and encouraging. I mean, think about going in the trenches into a war and being by yourself versus being by you know, brothers who fight alongside right, of you. Absolutely. That is such an encouraging yeah. thing. And one of the things you may not realize about how the church calendar is structured but this day, All Saints Day, is on the same level as Easter and Christmas. 
there, there's yep. no higher level to put yep. this. And I think it's the only, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, all the other major feasts on that level have to do with what Jesus did in history. This talks about the people of God primarily. Yep. That's right. Um, so it really combats the individualism and I think gives some great relief of having to, to trailblaze your own way in the world and recognize that, um, yeah, there's, there's people who've gone before and there's a great sigh of relief of, of having to go, I don't have to reinvent things. And that's another danger, I think, of our world today is like we prize innovation. We prize right. the new and, and actually that can be highly dangerous. It's the, the old, well-worn paths that lead to life. Yes. And I think one of the other things that is so encouraging about thinking about All Saints Day in a robust way is the idea that when you think about the people, if you're a Christian, the people that have been really deeply involved in your spiritual life, the people that you feel more bonded to even than some of your biological family, that those relationships don't end at someone's death, that those relationships continue on into eternity and that we will be known as individuals we will be free from the burden of sin but that that love and those relationships will only grow in eternity which is a wonderful and beautiful thing to be able to look forward to the verse that comes to my mind you alluded to it but it's from the book of hebrews uh, hebrews chapter 12 it says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's referring to the saints, not just on earth, but also in heaven. And the, the imagery there, the word is the same word, people that were in a stadium watching an athletic competition and cheering for the people that are participating. Yeah. So he says, since we're surrounded by them, in light of that reality that you're in a stadium surrounded by these, these folks who have gone before and fought the good fight, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And I love that imagery because it is, it's athletic imagery, but that's part of what the Christian life is, is that mm -hmm. you're in a fight, you're running, and you actually don't have to do it alone. You have other folks as well. Um, that are cheering you on both in heaven and, and here. Um, what are some of the things, before we wrap up and throw it open, where would you point somebody if they wanted to grow in their knowledge of the, quote, saints? Those who um, maybe are famous either martyrs or uh, famous Christians in history. We haven't mentioned chronological snobbery either, and I'm surprised <laughs> you haven't brought that up. But maybe this is a way, as you answer that question, of where, to, where would you point somebody if they wanted to grow in their understanding of the saints? Yeah, so um, before that, just to explain chronological snobbery, um, that is a phrase that was coined by C.S. Lewis uh, to refer to the fact that particularly starting in the 20th century, a lot of people in academia really embrace the idea that we are smarter and better than any people that ever lived in history before us. And therefore, we can throw out the entire accumulated wisdom of the human race because, I mean, they didn't have radio. I mean, really. That was the 1940s. Uh, they didn't have radio, so clearly they couldn't have thought great thoughts or have understood truth. 
Uh, but the idea is that chronological snobbery means that you consign to the waste bin everything that happened in human history, which of course is absolutely ridiculous to do that. But I think one of the, there are several great ways to learn about the saints. One is to read biographies of saints. Uh, there are some tremendous things that are out there that are great to read. Uh, if you want to read something really easy, um, go home and Google the Confessio of St. Patrick. Um, it's really short. It's on the internet. Uh, it will blow your mind because it's so cool. And it was written in the 400s um, about St. Patrick's life and faith. Uh, if you are of a slightly more uh, literary bent, you might try reading St. Augustine's Confessions, uh, which is a profoundly moving work. Um, there are books on the lives of the saints. Um, to get an idea of the importance of saints and fellowship together, there's a wonderful small book that's called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was a Christian in the midst of Nazi Germany. He was the last person executed by the Nazis on the personal order of Adolf Hitler. And this book is just a beautiful book about what being in real fellowship with believers is about. You could also read Eric Metaxas's biography of Bonhoeffer. Um, there's so many great resources out there. Yeah. I remember, I've mentioned this before, but um, uh, reading about Eric Little, but also the missionary who was in Ecuador who slips my mind. Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, yep. yes. Uh, there's several different biographies. And there are two great movies. Um, yeah. If you've never watched the movie Chariots of Fire, um, please watch that. Uh, you might have noticed if you were at St. Philip's Sunday that got quoted in the sermon. Uh, but it's a really terrific movie. Um, and there's also a movie about Jim Elliot that I think is maybe called Three Gates of Splendor. Through the Gates of Splendor, that's yeah. right. Which is also a book written by him. But I'm going to... So you mentioned um, St. Patrick and some early church stuff, but also the time of the Reformation. This was key in English mm -hmm. Reformation mm -hmm. history. It was Fox's Acts and Monuments. The, yes. Um, yes. The Book of Martyrs yes. by John Fox's Fox. Book of Martyrs. Yep. And so I hesitate. Which every educated person used to have to read. Is that right? Well, English. I have never read yep. it. I was just about to say I'm quoting something I've never read, but um, that, I believe, played a huge impact in the Reformation in mm -hmm. England, and mm -hmm. I think there's still access to that today. That might oh, yeah. be one yep. to to check out. A, a more modern one that if you're interested, there's a book, I'm sorry I didn't bring it, it's in my office if you want to know, um, Vintage Saints and Sinners by Karen Wright Marsh. It's 25 Christians who transformed my faith. And she goes through all different points of the church's history, you, taking 25 different figures. And uh, that was a really accessible, really easy kind mm -hmm. of intro to some of the major figures of the saints. Well, the other thing yeah. I would say is that one of the reasons that I love the music that we do at St. Philip's is that many of the texts that we sing were actually written by saints. So we have hymns that were written by St. Patrick, hymns that were written by St. Augustine, Saint, hymns that were written by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. I mean, sometimes just look at when those hymns were written very often you'll see they were written in the 400s or the 600s. And the fact that that has been sung 
constantly by generation after generation after generation of believers in Jesus is super encouraging. One of the other things, too, is we've, we've often talked about what we do in a worship service, what we do on Sunday mornings, is so significant, far more significant than we realize. It's probably the place where it's like a thin space, right, mm-hmm. where heaven and earth, that barrier between the two is very thin. And I think one of the things uh, I've noticed often is particularly when people have lost a loved one and they come up to receive communion or just in part in church, there's something, as, as we were talking about, this connection between the church in heaven and the church here on earth that is, is almost there's this connection that is no more profound and no more real than when we're gathered together to worship on Sunday mornings. And I've seen that so often, as you mentioned, coming to the communion rail and receiving, that there is something mysterious about this connection we do have with loved ones who've died well in the faith and who are cheering us on, so to speak, uh, from, from the other side. Yeah, and the architecture at St. Philip's is making that explicit because I would encourage you next time you're in there to notice that when you come into the church, there's this huge high barrel vault ceiling with the angels up in the arches and then the pomegranate blossoms, which are symbols of eternal life. Um, that are way up in the arches. But as you get toward the altar, what happens is there's this half dome and the pomegranate blossoms start as buds at the top of the dome and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until they are fully open at the part that is closest to the altar. And so the idea is that at the altar, heaven and earth meet and it is, a profoundly beautiful image. Well, let's throw it open. How are we doing, Baxter, on on questions? Um, We are doing great. Here's a reminder that if you haven't already, scan the QR code, um, ask any burning questions that are still on your mind, but more importantly, go through and like the questions that you want to be asked, because that's kind of the the rank order we're going to ask them. Do you want to go ahead with the first one, or do you want to sure. the Sure, yep, so ready. Okay. Um, the first one, do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> uh, yes and no. Um, so I would say yes. One of the things, and Justin, you can comment on this too, one of the things that is quite clear when you read the New Testament is that there is most definitely a spiritual world, and that there are... Um, all sorts of inhabitants of the spiritual world, uh, which might be angels or might be demons. Um, the, the idea that every person has a ghost that can be summoned at will, um, that's crazy. But the fact that there are presences, whatever you might choose to call them, um, and that the spiritual world is real, um, Absolutely. And one of the things that's interesting is that because we live in this Western culture, we're really sort of out of step with that. If you were in Africa or South America or certain parts of Asia, there's a much more robust understanding about the spiritual world. And like one of the things that's really interesting to me is that I can't remember if this was in China or India, but one of those countries within the past 10 years enacted a law 
forbidding certain spirits to reincarnate in particular provinces. What? So, yes. It's tough to enforce, I guess. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're an atheistic country, the fact that yeah, you do that is that's very wild. curious. No, I think that like if you're getting your theology of ghosts from Casper, the friendly ghost, and things like that, that's probably or Ghostbusters. Or Ghostbusters, that's probably wrong and not helpful. Um, but I would answer just what you said. There is a spiritual realm, and that's one thing we didn't talk about tonight, but we could. Is uh, particularly in the book that you're doing right now, the last battle, mm-hmm. the danger of entering into things unbeknownst even to yourself. So we we confess that there are spiritual forces of wickedness. And trifly going about playing with some of these things is not a helpful thing. And it's actually quite dangerous. And yeah. so uh, we didn't really go into that at all. Um, but, yeah, I love there's several places in the last battle that, that bring it up. Yes. Um, yeah, I think recognizing that and then but affirming that he who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. I think you, you should not have a crippling fear of evil spirits or anything like that, but the presence of Christ who promises to be within us is uh, greater than any sort of uh, evil power or demon anything like that that can possess. Awesome. My next question is, how should we approach rebuking the New Age spiritualism of horoscopes, crystals, and quote-unquote white witches? Uh, That is a great question. I think part of that is It's hard to deal with that in the abstract. Um, I think it's more important to deal with it if you're in relationship with someone who is into those things. And I think if that happens, um, it is important to try to talk to the person, ask them questions about why they believe this is meaningful, um, try to lead them uh, into truth, um, depending on where they're coming from. There's some people that would say that they're Christians that are into some of those things, and those are absolutely incompatible. Uh, But I think part of it is uh, trying to understand why the person is drawn to those things in the first place. And the helpful framework, too, is, I forget the the first word or two of the question, but the the way I approach that is seeing those who are um, in that as blinded. Mm-hmm. trapped, enslaved in something. And that gives a spirit of compassion on how you're going to speak into this. You're not going to come in guns blazing necessarily. Just, but you're going you're gonna to try to... A, it, it, on the one hand, speaks about the severity of what's going on, that it's not a small, th- trite thing. But also recognizing that it is something that uh, should produce great compassion that towards this person and, and recognizing that it's nothing short of the spirit of God to convince this person that what they're doing is, is wrong. So yeah. freeing them from that. And pray, dangerous. Pray, yeah, praying for them um, and encouraging them to, to join, especially if they have any sort of Christian faith, to go deeper into the uh, Christian practices that we so often talk about. Yeah. Um, for Brian... You are about to be marooned on an island and are forced to choose between bringing either your C.S. Lewis or Tolkien collection to read. Which one? We've had this question before, and I think it was phrased just like that, too. Nobody wants to know what I think about that. 
Well, we'll, we'll give you equal time. No, no. Um, that is such an unfair and difficult question. Um, but I would say probably I would take Lewis instead of Tolkien, which is like tearing my heart out um, in Unfriend. some ways. But the, the reason I would do that is that Lewis has a much larger output than Tolkien and has a far broader spiritual uh, repertoire, if you will, than Tolkien does. Although I will say the stories that Tolkien tells in The Lord of the Rings are so unbelievably beautiful that to be marooned without them would be very sad. Such a cautious answer that you gave. <laughs> I think it would be pretty easy. What would you say? I would, I would take Lewis too because, as you said, the, the, the sheer genre that he writes far outweighs yeah. Tolkien. I mean, he writes essays, academic, children's literature, um, yeah, I don't even know what you call the genre of um, screw tape letters, but he's so um, prolific in all sorts of different ways mm -hmm. that, in my mind, it's a lot easier than... And uh, much than, wisdom yeah. in all of it. Of yeah. course. But not that Thank you for asking that question. Um, do you believe certain places are more haunted than others? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that there are places where evil has happened yeah. that you can feel the sense of heaviness with that. I also think that there are places where there has been great joy or spiritual victory that you can feel that as well. And one of the really interesting experiences I've had recently in talking with someone about that is that some of y'all who come to C.S. Lewis class might have met uh, a week or two ago. There was a whole group of students from St. Stephen's Academy in Portland, Oregon that came uh, and were with us. And that's a classical Christian school in Portland. And they started coming to Charleston for their senior trip about three years ago. And the school that they go to was started by their headmaster, who's this brilliant guy who went to Stanford and Yale um, and was deeply converted to Christianity right when he graduated from Stanford. And so he felt called to open a school. So he was trying to think, where is the place that is among the darkest places in America spiritually? And so he went to Portland and started this school. But it was interesting because these kids came, and there were about 15 of them, and Jane and I had a pizza party for them on our roof deck last night. They were here. And we asked them, you know, what was your favorite thing about Charleston? What impressed you the most? And, you know, they'd been to Fort Sumter. They'd gone to the beach. They did a walking tour, all of that. And they talked among themselves, and they said, you know, really the thing that was most amazing to us about Charleston is that when you're in Portland, there's almost a palpable sense of spiritual darkness and oppression that just doesn't exist here. And these are 17 and 18 year olds. So that was just very interesting. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that we so often neglect is that, yes, we believe in spiritual forces of wickedness, but those are 
I mean, we live in an embodied world, and those uh, occur locally sometimes, right? And so where, where evil has occurred or in whatever sort of specific areas uh, are encounters, I guess, with, with such forces are going to happen in the physical world in some areas. So, of course, in some sense, they're going to be um, some places more afflicted with it than others. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting about Portland and know that. Yeah. How can I go about determining if someone or something is demon-possessed? That is a great question. Uh, I would be very careful about uh, talking to a person and saying, I think you're demon-possessed. That is not a conversation that's likely to go well. Uh, But I think that if if it is a place uh, that is something where it would be good to talk to someone who is a priest about that. Um, I think if there's a person where you think there really may be an issue with that, again, I think that would be a good thing to talk with a priest about. Uh, I think the one of the things that anyone could do in either of those circumstances is to pray for wisdom and discernment. Uh, if it is a person that you think has some involvement with the demonic, Um, to pray for that person, to pray that they would be delivered. Uh, But I would also be very careful because that is, it is a very real thing. Um, Demons are a real thing. I wouldn't say they're behind every bush, but they are a real thing, and you have to be very careful in dealing with that kind of thing. There's, there, there, I would, I don't know how to phrase this really, but I agree everything with what you said. I think being careful, on the one hand, ascribing demonic possession is a very nuanced and tricky thing. On the other hand, on the opposite side of that, is like Galatians 5, which says the works of the flesh are evident. Uh, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And in some ways, if you're wondering, uh, I, what I hear at the root of that question is, um, how can I know when something's really not going as it ought to? Uh, which, I mean, maybe demonic possession is an extreme specific nature of that. But all of those in this list of the works of the flesh are instances of the, the, the works of darkness mm-hmm. that are happening, that we're called to flee and to, called to... Um, turn from and so to put on the armor of God and to uh, walk according to the spirit which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. In my mind maybe this is just overly simplistic but those are things that are far more pressing of a question and far more actionable right than than I I think yeah it's probably not wise to say somebody is demon possessed. I I will say uh, night terrors like my son (laughs) actually has these and I thought I was like oh my goodness he's like his eyes didn't roll back in his head or anything like that that, like you know but he he was like totally in the middle of the night sitting up and just spewing off nonsense Mm -hmm. and was shaking and screaming I was like I don't know what demonic possession looks like but maybe this is it and so I, I prayed I prayed for him right but like I also looked up what night terrors were, and so, mm-hmm. um, 
And so I think on some level you have to be cautious of, of, of identifying this is demonic possession. What's far more helpful in my mind is Galatians 5 and saying what are the works of darkness and then what are we called individually right. to what do? Are the, and what's the fruit that you're seeing? Yeah. 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 What about the day of the dead? Is that in my... That, I think ICAL put that in my calendar. I don't know. Yes. What, is that? So the day of the dead, this is... Uh, yeah. Um, I have very strong opinions about this, so I'll try to control myself here. But I have um, no idea what it is. So, I, so Day of the Dead um, is basically something that comes out of a Latin American Catholic, often rooted in Catholicism, but aberrant understanding of All Souls Day um, that is um, popularized by a lot of Mexican restaurants and Bars and oh, there's a Disney movie about this, I think. Maybe. What is it? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I missed that movie. Sorry, I've got. I've got little. I don't know. Thank you so much. I can't wait to watch. He loves the Day of the Dead. Yeah. No, we we actually have talked about Day of the Dead because our favorite dive Mexican restaurant is what used to be La Hacienda on Folly Road. Yeah. It's now La Fiesta, and they redecorated with like this Day of the Dead theme, and it's so horrible. I mean, you go in there like all these skeletons everywhere. But that whole thing um, is a misappropriation of All Souls Day. And All Souls Day is supposed to be about thanking God for the lives of ordinary Christian believers. Um, very much in the way, I don't know how many of you know, the great George Eliot novel, Middle March. And at the end of that novel, she talks about how many people um, lived a hidden life and that there were people who lived hidden lives of goodness that are part of the reason that the world has not gone completely off the deep end. And that's really what All Souls Day is about. Those people whose names are not known, who are not famous, who aren't in any books, but who are doing the best that they could to try to follow Jesus in this life and make the world a better place because of that. And Day of the Dead, with all of the macabre elements of that, is just a misuse of that. Well, that makes sense. And maybe I'm, again, I didn't even know what this was until you explained that. But um, I think it's well documented that the syncretism that was happening in, in the Americas, South America, Central America, when Catholicism was coming over, right? And so I would imagine, maybe this is my own spin on it since I don't know it, but it makes sense to me that the syncretic tendencies mm -hmm. of taking the, the pure faith but also trying to appropriate other uh, cultural things from the culture that it was spreading yeah. to yeah. and all yeah, of a sudden you, a lot of it's you, Mayan. Yeah, you yeah. don't actually get what the Christian faith teaches, you get something, but it makes sense that it's in the eye calendar, right? Because it, I, I guess it's politically correct to have all different cultures represented, right. but, but that's a really a misuse or a misappropriation of, of the, at least the historic Christian faith. Right. Yes. Yeah. What happened to people who died before Jesus came? Were they just asleep and unaware that time had passed? That's a great question. That is a really great question. Um, so 
There are several different ways of looking at that. So one of the, one of the passages that speaks to that is one that I think this actually might have gotten skipped in the lectionary, but in the, in the past couple of weeks in the Anglican Church, we've been looking at the temple dialogues, which is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been trying to trap Jesus so they could get him to say something that would give them cause to arrest him. So they're asking a lot of really difficult questions. So one of the questions the Sadducees ask is, so there was this guy and he was married and then he died and so his widow married his brother and then that brother died and the widow married the next brother and then that brother died and the widow married the next brother. So she married seven different brothers. And so at the end of that, they asked the question, so at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven brothers had her. And Jesus says, you are very foolish because God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And he said he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the idea is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all still alive in heaven, and through, um, I guess what you could call imputed faith in Christ, because of their having faith in God, that they are, they are alive. Now, if you want to try to parse what that alive means, um, some people think of the, the idea of being asleep, alive and asleep, and then waiting to be wakened at the last trumpet. Um, there are a lot of different views about that, but uh, I think you see in the Old Testament the idea that there was still faith in the Old Testament that is credited as righteousness. Yeah. Do you want to add on to that? Well, that was the that last sentence was where I was going with it, and in my mind, the most one of the most famous chapters in the Bible is John chapter one. Right in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But we get to this part where it says. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And for many, including myself, what that meant was there's this sharp dichotomy between the Old Testament and then the New Testament. That the law was in the Old Testament. People had to obey that, to, and, and that was how they became right with God. But in, when Jesus came, that was finally when grace kind of arrived. And that's actually not at all the case. As you were talking about, and really all you got to go go to is Hebrews 11, where it's this mm-hmm. laundry list of all these Old Testament... Hall of Fame of Faith. Yeah, yep. Abel, Abraham, uh, Moses, and it just outlines all of these. Jacob, and what you see is it's looking to God, as you said, in faith, and anticipating becoming one who is going to... I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 3, the one who is going to crush uh, the serpent, that great dragon, the, the enemy, Satan. There, there was a promised one, a daughter, a son of Eve, who was going to come and do battle with the one who entered the garden. And the whole Bible is pointing to that deliverer who is Jesus Christ. So those in the Old Testament were looking forward. They put their trust in God. And we are looking backwards to what God has done in Jesus Christ. So both Old and New Testament it's always looking to this one, the, the, the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, in faith. And they were looking at it in a promise form. We look back 
in history, which in some ways is part of the privilege, is we mm-hmm. actually see how it played out. They walked by a greater degree of faith, I think. But yeah. the reality is, is they are uh, every much, every bit, I would say, with God uh, as, as the New Testament saints are. Yeah, and Hebrews is a great book to read about that. And there's this wonderful line in there that talks about all of those who died in faith not having received the promise, but having greeted it from afar. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about the Catholic Church praying to or through the saints? Uh, That is also a great question. Uh, I am not Catholic, so uh, I defer to people who are Catholics for the nuances of all of that doctrine, but I think that the the idea that the saints are praying for us is very much a scriptural idea that we understand that is part of the communion of the saints. I think you get on a very slippery slope when you start thinking about a particular saint who's got a particular in with Jesus on a particular type of thing like St. Anthony when you lose something, that if you pray to St. Anthony uh, that you will find your lost car keys. Um, That to me is very hard to square with scripture. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, the the one mediator between God and man is is Jesus. That's what we see throughout the, the New Testament makes it clear. Uh, I'd, I'd also want to say, again, I'm not Catholic, um, and if you've ever talked with the Catholic folks, they have a pretty robust understanding of this. It's not as black and white as so many Protestants, including myself, historically have made it sound. And so I think there's a danger if you are a Protestant and you affirm what we just said, that there is one mediator between God and man, that is Jesus, and that's through whom, that's how we pray to the Father is, is through Jesus we have the danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just throwing the saints all together, either as, um, as you said, looking for the fact that they are, um, how did you say, a prayer, that they're praying right. on our behalf? Yes. Um, I think our praying to them is probably not as helpful, but, but looking to the examples of the saints and uh, drawing encouragement and strength upon it is a thoroughly scriptural mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so often we hear the saints, if you're a Protestant, and, and you, you tend to just kind of back away slowly, but instead of, um, and, and so, in so doing, throwing the baby out with right. the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should Christians refrain from listening to music with satanic references, or is it fine? Uh, well, that's a good question. It might depend on the person. Uh, So we had some things in the playlist tonight that I created that uh, arguably might be satanic lyrics. Um, If you want to, uh, and I would actually encourage you to do this, go look at the lyrics to the Rolling Stones song Sympathy for the Devil, uh, because I think it's really good and up there with the screw tape letters in sort of understanding Satan's modus operandi. Um, I think if you are listening to music that glorifies Satan and is seeking to worship Satan, that would be a problem. 
um, and probably would be lousy music anyway. But um, yeah, I think you, you do have to be careful about what you put into your mind. We've talked a lot about uh, that whole idea of loving God with your mind. Uh, and so you don't want to just bring in garbage. Uh, but I think that thoughtful lyrics uh, can be thought-provoking. Yeah, that's, it's not just uh, when you say it references Satan. That's so broad, right? I mean, there's great hymns that, talking, that talk about Satan being vanquished. <laughs> and so those are thoroughly good, and you should listen to those. Uh, but I, I think you answered that so well. Of um, What is the nature of what's being said? And recognizing our own temptation to uh, have a proclivity towards that which is wrong. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do, is to indulge the things that draw us from the love of God. And so I think recognizing that we're not neutral beings, but we have this tendency, even as Christians, to go um, where we oughtn't to go, um, and, and having an honest and even talking about that, like, I think there'd be a great thing to do with uh, to look through lyrics and such as the "Sympathy for the Devil" by the Rolling Stones. Like that's a profound. Uh, there, are some profound songs that would be really good to to talk through. Yeah, and uh, you know it's interesting because today is also Reformation Day, which we haven't really talked about. But there's that great Martin Luther hymn, uh, "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God," and one of the stanzas to it says, "For still our ancient foe." Satan doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And then it goes, well, I won't quote the whole hymn, but it goes on to say, if we confide in our own strength, we're in serious trouble battling Satan. But when we rely on God's word and the incarnate word, uh, it says, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So that hymn is talking about Satan, but it's hugely encouraging. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, I think we're out of time, but uh, feel free to stick around. We'd love to continue the conversation. We'll be back in two weeks, and yep. I'm excited for that. But thank you all so much for coming Thanks out, for coming. as always. And we'll see you next time.